eventually it turned out that all 18 runners uh, reduced their energy uptake when running in a prototype shoe. And on average, over all the three different velocities, that was by 4%. That triathlon show, 179. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Walter Hochkamer. Walter is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he has been the lead researcher on the independent peer-reviewed studies that established the benefits of Nike's famous new shoe, the Vaporfly 4% shoes, so-called because they can improve running economy by 4%. And we will discuss the Nike Vaporfly shoes and running economy and what that actually means for improvements in speed and how that translation works. And also, more generally, properties that make shoes more or less economical and more related to these topics. But first, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And uh, just to remind you of how important it is to individualize your electrolyte intake, some people can lose just 200 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, whereas some people can lose over 2,000 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. And then when you multiply that by people having different sweat rates, so somebody may sweat twice as much as as another and actually in actual fact we can see up to five or six fold variances in the individual sweat rates themselves this means that you have to be deliberate with with your electrolyte intake especially when you're racing longer races and racing in in hot environments and so go to precisionhydration.com take their free online sweat test and that will give you an individualized hydration strategy and tell you more about what kind of electrolyte intake you should be looking for in your next race. You can use the promo code that triathlon show all one word all caps to get your first box of electrolyte product for free. And big thanks to Roka. Roka makes swimwear, triathlon apparel and eyewear and are trusted by some of the best triathletes in the world including people like Javier Gomez, Mario Mola, Jesse Thomas, Flora Duffy, Lucy Charles, Katie Sephiris, and Ashley Gentle, to name just a few. But that's the who's who of, of triathlon today almost. Uh, so uh, go and check them out on roca.com. Check out all their product lines. I really love their wetsuits, dry suits, goggles, and eyewear. So all of them are worth, worth a look if you're looking to buy, buy something new in any of those categories. You can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps, and again, the URL is roka, R-O-K-A, dot com. So without any further ado, let's get into the interview with uh, Dr. Walter Hochkamer. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Walter. Hi, nice uh, to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Why don't you start with just telling us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do and uh, and the research that, that you're doing? Yes, so um, my name is uh, Wouter Hochkamer. I'm uh, originally from the Netherlands, and uh, I'm currently uh, working at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And um, I've studied um, mainly 
neuromechanics, biomechanics, energetics of how people walk and run. And then most recently uh, in Colorado, uh, focused uh, on the biomechanics and energetics of, uh, of running. We actually also have been doing a little bit of cycling research, but, um, but, but most uh, prominent is, is the running uh, research. Been a runner myself, uh, started out on the track, um, ran the 400 meters in uh, 48 seconds. And then over the time, slowly progressed into uh, being a marathoner with the current uh, 232.50 uh, best. Wow, that's uh, that's fast. What's your favorite marathon that you run? Um, I ran that last uh, last uh, winter or last fall at uh, at CIM, which is um, in uh, Sacramento, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed that course. It's it's pretty long, straight stretches, um, and slightly downhill, sea level. So yeah, I really enjoyed that race. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, let's uh, start by talking a little bit about the research that you've been doing on the running side of things and footwear in particular that was the how i first found you and and your research through the the footwear research you've been doing so what is it specifically that you've been investigating there um so we we have been uh studying biomechanics of and energetics of running in various aspects before but um more recently we started to focus uh, more on, on on the role of footwear and uh basically before i joined this lab here um we already sort of got back from the rebound of the barefoot running where we knew that it's not necessarily always better to to wear uh, the lightest shoe out there. Um, the shoe is just not uh, some some useless piece of mass on your feet. It's it's actually has a function. And, and uh, the cushioning function of shoes has been shown to be uh, beneficial. Uh, it saves you energy. And um, so along those lines, we then started to look further into things um, we did first a study where we looked into how footwear uh, mass uh, not only costs you more energy, but also slows you down. So we did some uh, runners that uh, came in and, and did time trials on the indoor track. And um, and then I think most most known is, is the study we did on, uh, at that time, the Nike uh, prototype shoe, which eventually then uh, turned into the, the Nike Vaporfly 4% shoe. And uh, just uh, curious, did you have you run in the Nike Vaporfly uh, since doing that research? Yes, and yes. What are your thoughts as a runner? Yeah, so yeah, I, I um, uh, unfortunately when when we first got the first prototypes, they were like a size ten and, and and on the short side, and I'm a ten and a half, so I I could just jam my foot into them and 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 sort of try to run around, but but not comfortable enough to actually uh, be in the study or. Um, or, or or wear them during a longer race, uh, but then like obviously when 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 um, uh, we the study was finished and then the results were published and then the, the eventual shoe uh, came available, um, I was just logging into uh, to the website every time they released a new uh, batch and eventually I got myself a pair, and uh, yeah I've been happily uh, wearing them uh, for some half and and and, and full marathon races and uh, yeah I enjoy them. So, so let's talk then about the the results. I think that uh, that reaction of of getting onto the site and, and trying to buy the shoes when whenever a batch was available tells yeah. tells us something already. But but yeah. what did you find when you investigated them and compared them to to the other shoes that yeah. you had in the study? So I, I was uh, really uh, excited for us to be in a lab at that time because um, I mean I've been following shoe research for a while and 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 there had been small improvements in running economies. So 
uh, early on uh, when the first Nike Air shoes were released. They were a little better than the EVA shoes. And then um, some people already in the early 2000s uh, put a carbon fiber plate in shoes and we saw a 1% improvement in, in running economy. And then uh, there's obviously the Adidas Boost Foam when that was introduced and, f- and first studied. That was also shown to to have a one percent benefit. Um, so and then and then Nike said we got this new prototype shoe and and it might might be better than what we have been running on so far. So I was thinking like, all right, that that's going to be another one percent maybe, right? Because we're we have been making shoes for such a long time, so we're we're, we're just making steady progress. But then when we started testing the shoe, um, we first had to find uh, sort of the Cinderella's of Boulder. Uh, we were we wanted to test the shoe as fast as we uh, could and um, make sure that the runners were still um, at a steady state, not fatiguing over time. So we set out to find 18 uh, runners that were able to run a, a sub 31 minute 10K. Um, and that was alone already really hard. But then in addition, they also all had to wear this size 10 shoe. Um, but I guess uh, being in Boulder definitely uh, was the key to that. And we managed to find those 18 runners. And then when we eventually just uh, had them run three div- different velocities, basically uh, slightly faster than a seven minute mile, um, a six minute mile, and then a 520 mile. And then in each of those velocities, we compared uh, the new prototype shoe versus uh, the Adidas Boost, uh, Adios Boost 2 shoe. That was the shoe that Kimeto was wearing when he set the world record in the marathon. And um, and the Nike Streak 6, which was basically Nike's fastest marathon shoe at that time. And then uh, when we then started testing people, uh, we started to see very clear trends. And then eventually it turned out that all 18 runners uh, reduced their energy uptake when running in a prototype shoe. And on average, over all the three different velocities, that was by 4%. That's incredible that, that all 18 runners really improved. Because in many cases, when we see numbers from studies, it's an average and you have responders and non-responders. But exactly. uh, it's yeah, really cool. Yeah, we we so, we had some variability there, right? So some people only improved two percent, some were more in the six percent. So just because that the total effect was was four percent allowed us to even the people with small responses to still have a benefit. Um, uh, so that was kind of the key to that, I think. Do you know? Do you have a, a hypothesis for why those changes between individuals that that variance? Is there, like, are there any particular things that make some people get even bigger benefits than others in those shoes? Yeah, we, we, we thought about that a lot. Um, um, and um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, hypothesizing at first, we were thinking maybe um, sort of the, the, the heavier runners might have more of a benefit from, from this new foam. Um, and um, um, the other thing was... Um, Related to uh, to to foot strike pattern, what we did see sort of overall was that it wasn't really strong uh, significant effect, but that the heel strikers seemed to have uh, more of a four and a half percent benefit versus the forefoot midfoot strikers more like a three and a half. Um, but but like yeah, overall we we couldn't really find a lot of uh, other factors that would influence which person would would have a big benefit and which person would have a small benefit uh it wasn't definitely not mass um it wasn't uh stride frequency um 
And also, like I said, the, the, the strike pattern was there. It wasn't the big effect. And then since then, we have done some more follow-up testing. And, and there, we didn't really see it. So it might have been just the, the nine people that, that were for food striking versus the nine people that were not in our study. Because um, it's always hard. If, if you have 18 runners um, and you see changes in energetics um, uh, to actually find a clear determining factor what explains is who who is going to have big savings and who is going to have small savings yeah and of course there's always going to be some variability and it uh, may be just natural variability so yeah. i guess we don't know at this point but four percent that's uh, a couple of fo- follow-up questions that's uh, running economy or, or the, the energetic cost of, of running uh, so uh, first what is that compared to four percent compared to what Yes. So um, so we measure oxygen uptake and CO2 production to get us a measure of uh, energy expenditure. Um, and uh, we, we, we use two baseline shoes. Um, and uh, originally we, we set out to, uh, to compare it to the marathon world record shoe from Adidas. So the Adios 2 uh, that the Kimera was wearing. And then uh, we also included the Nike Streak shoe. And I think I think if I remember the numbers correctly, it was about a 4.0% better than the Adidas shoe and a 4.1% better than the the Streak shoe. Uh, But both the Nike Streak and the Nike prototype had some added mass in there uh, because we we wanted to make sure um, ahead of time we didn't know how big of an effect to see. Uh, So we wanted to see that any effect we saw uh, was actually due to the shoe properties and not just because they were lighter. So um, yeah, so 4% uh, compared to basically the two most common fast marathon shoes out there. Um, but obviously that is sort of confounded by the fact that Adidas and Nike are the big companies that sponsor the fastest marathoners. Um, so are, those are more likely to run the faster time. So um, there might've been other shoes out there um, from other brands that we didn't compare, but um, yeah, we, we, we can't test all shoes out there, right? So we had to pick and we picked the shoes that were worn uh, most commonly by the, the 10 fastest times up till then. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I would assume that the R&D uh, expenditure, uh, expenditure of the other com- shoe companies than Adidas and, and Nike combined don't even come anywhere close to, yeah. to any one of those alone anyway. So so it makes makes sense to compare to, to those shoes. And 4% uh, more or less energy expenditure or energetic cost, uh, how much faster can you run with that? And I guess that's going to depend on the speed. Can you elaborate a bit on, on what that translates to in terms of speeds? Yeah, so th- so that's a good question, and uh, we we're still trying to figure that out completely. So um, what we do know, it, it's not a one-to-one relationship. And uh, a long time we 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 thought that. So when when you think about how we typically uh, measure uh, running performance and energy cost, is is like uh, if you go faster, um, you use more energy. Uh, but it doesn't mean that if you uh, go 4% faster that you use 4% more energy those things are slightly uh, uncoupled or i mean they're coupled but they're not linearly related um, so more recently um, we went back to sort of do an overview of the literature of, of different studies that all measured 
how does energy cost increases with velocity? Um, most of those studies uh, are performed on treadmills. Um, and uh, the good thing is for treadmill studies, you can control the speed very carefully. Um, and, and you're not depending on whether it's windy outside or not, if you have a tailwind headwind. But at the same time, you don't have wind at all. So there's no air resistance. So what we did recently, we, we sort of combined all those studies and then um, added another uh, classical term from a wind tunnel study showing that if, if energy cost increases with velocity on a treadmill, it's even going to be increasing more outside because the faster you go outside, the more air resistance there is and the bigger the effect of air resistance increases your energy cost even more. Bringing all those things together really points out that uh, how much benefit or how much faster you can run with a 4% improvement in, in running economy really depends on how fast you're running uh, to start off. Um, I think what we landed on is if, if you're, um, by combining all the numbers, it's basically uh, around a three-hour marathon, uh, you, you get about um, 4% for 4%. But if we're thinking about Kipchoge and, and it's two-hour marathon, at that point, because he's running so much faster, uh, and both the fact that he's running so much faster on the treadmill alone makes the energy cost go up more, and then adding the air resistance makes it even worse. So in his case, that, that, that would only come down to a 2.6%. At the same time, on the other side of the spectrum, when you're slower, um, your energy cost does not increase that steeply with, with increases in velocity. And that actually suggests that uh, a specific benefit in, in, in running economy uh, would allow you to, to, to have an, uh, an even bigger uh, gain in speed. And so for, for example, the four-hour marathon, or do you have any numbers off the top of your head, roughly what that um, Well, we... we with the paper we recently published, we actually released an Excel sheet um, to, to get at those uh, questions. So I have it open for me and I can quickly put in a, a four-hour marathoner. Um, yeah, you, you, you can do that. And, and while you do it, I can, uh, I can say to the listeners that we'll make sure that we have it in the, in the show notes for this episode. So uh, that will be scientificcraftlon.com forward slash tts 179 i believe so so we'll link to that so that anybody can and i i remember now that i have used that spreadsheet it was uh, yeah. very handy so 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 i i ran the numbers now for so for a four-hour marathoner um um you get a let's assume a four percent increase in running economy that allows you to actually run 4.2 percent faster uh so that's basically taking off uh, 10 minutes uh of your marathon time hmm Versus if you okay. would be uh, the two-hour marathoner, um, for the, everything else the same, you will only get a 2.5% uh, benefit, and that will only take off three minutes of a two-hour marathon. Um, so so, so that, that definitely shows the effect of, of, uh, of running velocity on, on your savings and improvements in time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for It's still like for the age groupers listening, that three-hour marathon is like even for most fast age groupers three hours for a marathon is, is still pretty fast yes. there are not that yeah, many that sure. can, can run a three-hour marathon so so for most we will have sort of that one-to-one -one, uh scenario i guess and and then we will have also the 
the ones that are slower than three hours, so they will get even more. So, so it definitely points to the fact that this is actually something that is really beneficial. We're not really talking about marginal gains anymore. This is bigger than marginal gains. Yeah. So there, there's one thing I want to add to that is though is is here I assume this four percent carries on to those speeds. So we we did not test the shoe anywhere slower than than three hours. So. Um, I cannot make the claim um, that for a four-hour uh, marathoner, they will get a 4% uh, benefit in, in running economy on average on their speed. Uh, but we do know that if you would go to a lab and you would know that this intervention saves you X percent, then that means in, in your case, as a four-hour marathoner, you're going to be slightly uh, faster than, than, than that X percent. Yeah, that that is a great point. That is a great point. Uh, all right, so uh, let's uh, go back to shoes in general. There's one more question, a follow-up that I had yeah. uh, on something you mentioned early on, and it was about how you mentioned that cushioning in general is good for economy, uh, but weight is uh, bad in terms of the shoe. Uh, so those seem to be a bit at odds with each other, of course, because cushioning is going to have some weight. Exactly. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about those, how, how that trade-off is made? And also, are there any other variables in footwear that we know to be good just in general to, I guess, help the listeners make shoe purchasing decisions? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, that's a good question. So... We always have been aware of, of this trade-off, obviously, that if you have, add more cushioning, uh, the, the shoe is going to be heavier. Um, and, and we knew that that, that trade-off existed and, and, and that at some point people were comparing barefoot running to running with shoes. And then some of them saw benefits, some of them didn't see differences. Uh, but then, like around uh, 2012 or, or so, uh, people from our lab here in Colorado sort of all grouped all those studies together and looked at it more closely and, and, and started to see that the, the studies that did see benefits for, for barefoot running were the studies that as the, their baseline shoe condition used fairly heavy shoes, like 350 grams or more. Um, so yeah, if, if your baseline shoe weighs 350 grams, if you take it up, of there might be a benefit um, but if you're looking at other studies that used 150 gram shoe if you take that off it's not necessarily better and it, it might even be worse so um, that was a nice indication and 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 they uh, then followed up with another study where they um, basically took the cushioning out of the shoe and put it on the surface so uh, they had this big uh, big treadmill with big rollers and um then uh, they reached out to Nike, and, and Nike provided them with some uh, some some foam. So rather than um, having having the cushion EVA uh, foam in the shoe, they they got these uh, these, these big slats that they then uh, used uh, and, and put around the treadmill belts. So in that case, we could test uh, energy cost of running, and all the runners were running barefoot on a very rigid treadmill. And then, in addition, they run barefoot on a very rigid treadmill with one centimeter of uh, EVA foam on top of it, and, and that would just follow the belt. And when they did that study, uh, they clearly quantified that just the benefit of having a soft landing uh, can save you uh, more than 1%. It's like 1.5% of energy. Um, 
So you take the mass of the shoe out of the equation because the cushioning is now on the surface and not on the foot anymore. And when you do that, you see that, that, that the benefit of cushioning is actually one to one and a half percent. And that was just with, with the custom, uh, like a traditional EVA form of the time. And like I also mentioned earlier is that since then, I mean, Nike has developed an airbag, uh, which is better than EVA. Adidas has built uh, the, their, their boost foam, which is 1% better than EVA. Now, the new Nike foam in, in the Vaporfly shoes is even better than that. Uh, obviously, the, the other brands uh, have their own foams, flight foam, uh, all different blends of EVA and all optimized for energy return and softness. So all of them uh, will probably be slightly even better than the ones they used in the study at the time. So there's clearly a benefit of, of cushioning. And it was interesting because that study um, was probably... A, important part of the reasoning of, of how Nike came about to eventually build this Vaporfly shoe is that at that point they decided, so let's forget about mass for a while and just try to build a shoe that optimizes everything else. And then we can deal with the mass later. And they set out to do it and then eventually turned out really lucky because then the new foam they, they implemented turned out to be also really light. So then it was really easy to get of the mass effect, but uh, it wasn't their initial goal. They really stepped back from this arms race on getting the lighter and lighter shoe and actually uh, valued the cushioning and, and tried to optimize cushioning and energy return properties and then later deal with the mass issues. Mm, yeah that that makes a lot of sense when when you explain what they did in that in that study with the the foam on the treadmill and thinking of running on the track and uh how that feels and i guess is uh fast and why tracks aren't made of made of asphalt or or anything yeah. like that uh, what one thing you mentioned eva uh, as a mater base material for foams i guess what, what is eva what does it stand for uh it's uh, acetylvinyl uh wait it is atyl Vanille acetate, I think. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce it in English correctly either, but um, it's 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 basically the most common foam that you will see in any running shoe around, um, except for the Adidas Boost, which is is it's a different material. But I think most training shoes out there, most running shoes, uh, uh, race shoes from different brands, all will have some sort of EVA in there because it's really durable and it's soft, it's cushioned. Uh, but the energy return properties are not ideal and different brands use different procedures of, 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 of mixing that foam with other foams and more rubbery substances um, to, to both have the benefit of durability, cushioning, and, and to optimize energy return. Um, but then, like I said, the boost foam is, is started off from a different material and a new Nike uh, PBAX foam is, is, is also um, not an EVA foam, but okay. most most training shoes are just because um, you, you can get more miles out of them, uh, out of EVA. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because that reminded me that there's talk about the, the, the 4% shoes not lasting very long, at least not with, with that good recoil and, re and good economy. So how do you have uh, what what's your recommendation i guess how how long would you run in those yeah. shoes and, and expect them to still work for you very well yeah that's a good question i i we we didn't really quantify that for our study we made sure that none of the shoes um 
actually went over 30 miles. And at that point, we, we sent the shoes back to, uh, to do the material testing. And we saw that the, after 30 miles, they were still as good as new. Um, but then I, I am aware and uh, I've experienced myself as well that, that as soon as you go uh, closer to 200 miles, uh, things start to, to, to function less well. Um, but like I said, I haven't seen actual data on it, um, so I wouldn't really take my word for granted there. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I also haven't really put my shoes uh, to a lot of miles yet, just because um, uh, I only use them for races, uh, because I know that might not last very long. Um, but if you were really interested in and do a lot of races, um, or, or you do use them for workouts as well, uh, it's something to keep an eye out, but but it's hard for for me to put a number on it because I haven't seen any of the data on it, rather the the anecdotes. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I I got mine uh, two weeks ago, and I did a a half uh, Ironman distance race this Sunday, and that was the first time that I that I used the shoes, except for a really short test jog in them. Yeah. So and and I'm going to only use them for for races. I don't need to be that fast in workouts. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> So as long as long as they last last in the races and exactly. uh, and bring the bring the bonuses in terms of economy there. Um, in in terms of you've investigated some things that are are not footwear as you mentioned as well. Uh, what other biomechanical factors are important for running economy? Can you talk a little bit about that more generally? Yeah, it's it's a hard question. Um... Because there, there's a lot of different studies on small sample sizes that might seem to be indicating that one thing might be important over the other. I think from a biomechanics perspective, um, thinking about people's running form, I believe that most people uh, sort of self-optimize and, and through years of training, they, they find out, um, their, and like unconsciously find out their best way to run. Um, uh, but then if, if you think about biomechanics in a more broader scale, we did some other uh, uh, interesting thought experiments related to this two-hour marathon concept, so thinking about um, how, how we, can we improve running performance um, by, by tapping into these biomechanical uh, things we know about running. And uh, one of the things that, that came out there was, was really uh, running uh, behind other runners. So obviously the trial lawn communities is fairly well aware with with the benefits of drafting and cycling um but but it also seems to hold at least for 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 people at kipchoge's two-hour marathon pace um uh, that that running behind another runner saves you energy um it's interesting because the, the the data that is out there is really old it's from a 9070 wind tunnel test where they had one runner uh run behind one other runner uh, but they did see at that time that uh, the, the metabolic savings were around six percent, and they from running behind another running, and that was kind of independent of running velocity. Six so percent does, of, of energy cost. You mean, yeah. Or, so that yeah. so that does indicate that that whether you're running at a two-hour pace or or at a four-hour uh, pace, um, that, that that in both cases you'll get about a six percent uh, benefit in energy costs from running. Uh, that was really close. That was one meter behind another runner. So obviously, that's probably too close to to actually do unless you're running with your twin uh, twin sister who has exactly the same uh, gait as you have. But um, 
just running with, with more people of different heights and different step lengths and cadences, it's tricky to run that close behind another runner. Um, but there's definitely benefits, specifically if you have a race where there is a substantial tailwind on one section, if you could rotate like you always would do on a bike, you can also apply that for running and, and, and get some benefits there. Um, we also quantified the benefits of downhill running. Um, it's obviously that if you just have start at the top of a high mountain and run all the way down, you can probably run faster, even though uh, when you start talking about the marathon distances, like your muscle damage builds up over time. So, so maybe that, 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 that interferes with that. But what we did for that study was then just look at the IAAF regulations for what is uh, rec record eligible. And they said that you can drop a maximum of 42 meters over the 42 kilometers marathon race. And then we quantified, well, let's assume that we do exactly that. How much faster could one run? And, and that, that saves you about uh, half a minute at Kipyogi pace again. So uh, what do you compare that to a completely flat course? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you have a completely flat course uh, versus you would drop those allowed 42 meters, you can go slightly faster. Um, uh, obviously, uh, there's not a perfectly flat course, um, and, and most of them have, have some uh, slight hills or bridges or uh, other things where there is some change in elevation. Uh, and, and every time you, you run up a bridge and down a bridge, that, that's going to be uh, worse versus just running all everything on the level. Yeah, I, I remember running Berlin one year. I, I ran marathons before getting into triathlon, and and that's as flat as as you could possibly imagine. But it did yeah. have a couple of those small bridges, so so it wasn't yeah. completely flat. So, but yeah, that's that's really interesting, and and I think that that drafting like that that's a surprisingly big a big effect in terms of energetic saving. And one thing that I remember from uh, from reading and studying and and having interviews in aerodynamics uh, in cycling is that uh, in cycling at least there is this uh, we know that you basically you you save more at higher speeds because of the wind resistance but on the other hand you're going to be out on the course for a shorter time so it all sort of evens out in the end yeah. whether you're a slower cyclist that get get some certain uh, aerodynamic advantage compared to a faster cyclist because you're going to save slightly less per but time unit but time. but you're going to be out there for a longer time so so maybe something similar does apply in in running as well yeah yeah that would make sense is there anything else that anything interesting that uh, that you've done in in your work that that we haven't talked about that uh, that would be cool for the listeners to to know that you want to mention uh well we we have been doing some some cycling uh shoe research as well recently and, and we're, we're still working on that but it was kind of interesting for me to see that um, uh, when you just ride at a steady uh, speed uh, or a, yeah at a steady speed and at around up to 150 watts um, it, it's not necessarily a difference in, in your uh, efficiency whether you're wearing uh, carbon fiber uh, shoes with, with uh with the cleats versus uh, just like the, the old pedals and, and your Nike free shoe on top of it. Um, so that was kind of a cool study. But then we recently obviously showed that as soon as it comes down to high power outputs, there's, there's definitely the benefit of, of the, of the cleats and, uh, and the cycling shoes. That, that's actually a really interesting knowledge because most people, beginners doing their first triathlons are, are going to be below that 150 Watts 
anyway in their in their races mostly so yeah so uh, and, think, and the common piece of advice is to just do it on any bike that you can find you don't need to buy a bike for doing your first triathlon so this shows that you're not really losing anything <laughs> by doing yeah, that yeah and it, it's interesting to see if if, if you were just wearing your vaporfly four percent running shoes on your bike all the time um then you might get some additional savings from not changing shoes um in the transitions too so but then like i said that's for steady state cycling and i think most triathlon courses will force you to slow down in the turns then speed up and there might be some hills and things like that uh, where every time there's a change in in intensity um then there, there might be a benefit of having a more secure connection to the pedal um but like yeah under 150 watts that, that that's probably not going to be too much of an uh, effect of shoe yeah. footwear there yeah well, I, I think that they're doing since they're having the the mixed relay is getting into the olympics now for for tokyo in 2020 i think the new zealand team they used some sort of not the the normal system for clipping in some sort of platform shoes that were i, I don't really know how it works to be honest but but some way of getting I guess a trade-off and the best of both worlds. There, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what what it actually is. I just heard about yeah. it very loosely, but I think that for those short distances, even though these are the best of, in the world that we're talking about, they were experimenting with it and potentially seeing that transition costs in such a short and fast race, with each leg of the mixed relay lasting maybe 20 minutes in total for a swim bike run, and then you basically hand off the baton baton to the next person. So. Uh, so there it might make sense to save those extra 10 seconds in in transition yeah no i i agree and there there is like as as long as your hind leg is on the pedal um i mean just having your leg there it would definitely still be in contact with the pedal and and there are studies even at higher power outputs that 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 instruct people to to ride uh uh, like minimizing the dead spot uh, velocity changes and things like that and 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 there's not a lot of gains there in efficiency by by doing that so uh, as long as 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 your uh, your power output is not too high um, you're not pulling up on your back pedal so much that that your foot is actually coming off the pedal so um, yeah it's it's an interesting that the interface there but like i said it, as soon as you go to high power outputs um that that does becomes important so i don't suggest to uh if, if you're a high power output rider uh to just put on your running shoes and forget about all all the, the cycling uh shoes and stuff but uh it, it's something to think about uh, on the lower end of the power output spectrum and and, and maybe even just experiment with yourself if you're really are failing to to put out the, the typical power outputs you have when when you change your shoes to running shoes because they might change your time at the transition. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the the most useful application might be those really short races like mixed relay or different sorts of club yeah. races where you might have very super short courses, not the standard distances, or uh, but all, and the beginners of course at the lower power output end. Uh, in in terms of that uh, pulling up and I, I don't think that it's more that that's one of the most common myths in cycling actually because I think that it's more about not not just res- not resisting the the upstroke exactly. on the back end so yeah. not actually pulling so and you can do that uh, just as well with with any shoe so but uh, yeah let's uh, 
start to wrap it up here and uh, move on to the rapid fire questions that I ask all the guests on the podcast. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm just uh, going to go with uh, the Let's Run website, um, mainly because it's sometimes funny to to see how people do not necessarily believe your scientific studies or have opinions about science. Um, that, 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 that keeps me sharp. And, and that was one of the reasons why we, we followed up showing in a scientific paper, like, hey, if you see 4% savings, uh, it doesn't mean 4% faster because those kind of misconceptions on those popular uh, websites like Let's Run are, are, are sort of kind of funny for me sometimes. And so sometimes I also get really annoyed by it. Uh, but overall, I think I still really like the, 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 the website and the resources and the ideas about there from people that are just doing the actual thing rather than just the scientists who think about it. Um, it's good to get the, the feeling of the, of the the active people themselves as well. And there are some real gems there. Like I remember reading long discussions on Renato Canova's uh, marathon training philosophy <laughs> and those sorts of things. So you can find really, really useful yeah. stuff there. What's your yep. favorite piece of gear or equipment? I think I'm going to go with uh, my Nike Pegasus Turbo trainer shoes because they, um, they're just a little bit more affordable than the 4% shoes, uh, but they have the same foam. And uh, yeah, I, I, would, I, I use them a lot for, for my runs um, just to, uh, to not use my expensive shoes that I just keep for racing. Um, I like the, the, the Nike Turbo shoes a lot. And what's the personal habit that has helped you achieve success? I think, yeah, dedication is probably something you will hear a lot. But um, yeah, it's just I'm dedicated. I'm, I'm, I get my running first thing in the morning and, and it helps me think things through and um, dedicated to the work I do and the science I do. Um, yep. Yeah, we do hear it a lot, but it mean, just means that it's worth paying attention to. thank you so much Walter it was uh, really good to talk to you and and get your expert knowledge on on these topics on footwear and uh, running biomechanics and and all uh, things related so really appreciate your time yeah sure I I really always enjoy talking about the the work we do and and, and get people's uh, idea about it and and see what we can learn from that and take it uh, the next step so yeah it was great talking to you and and are you on uh, Twitter social media any where people can follow you I am on Twitter as uh, Wouter Sinas, and then the Sinas is actually uh, sort of the, the 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 Dutch version of uh, the, the the orange soda that we have here. Uh, so it's W O U T E R S I N A S, and we'll have that in the show notes, so you don't have to stop driving your car and and start scrabbling. So <laughs> it will be easy Perfect. to find later. Okay, thanks again, Wouter. All right, thank you. All right, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I can say that uh, after I read the papers that uh, Walter and his group published, and also after using that Excel spreadsheet that we mentioned that we'll link to in the show notes, which helped me to, to actually see what the speed improvements I could potentially expect from from the Nike Vaporflies in, uh, in for example, uh, a half marathon at the end of a, a 20.3 race, I just immediately went down to the to the local Nike shop here in Lisbon and bought those 4% shoes. Uh, no question about it. Those uh, It's more than marginal gains. So they are expensive and we don't really know how long they last. So for me personally, as we discussed, I will only use them for races. And uh, for now, I've only used them in one race. 
And it's it's impossible to say how much of a difference they made, if any. But at least I felt very, very good and had a fantastic run. So so I will keep using them as my go-to racing shoe. And that way I can get quite a few races out on them before uh, potentially the degradation of material means that they lose their uh, their properties that make them so economical. So that's uh, my personal take on, on this, at least. So maybe that will give you some, some insight into whether it's worth for you to invest in them or not. Hopefully at some point though, the industry catches up so that the price point on these kinds of shoes can come down quite a bit. That would definitely be, be good. As usual, you can find the show notes for today's episode on that triathlonshow.com. I'll link to the studies that we mentioned and, and to that Excel spreadsheet where you can calculate your potential run speed and runtime improvements based on your level because as we discussed slower runners may actually see larger improvements than faster runners also we have plenty of related episodes on running and running economy and i won't list them all right now but if you go to scientifictriathlon.com in the menu bar you go to more and then to popular topics and running so more popular topics running and uh, that page will list all episodes categorized as running episodes and you can go and have a look there because there are plenty of episodes about for example running economy and and similar episodes that would be interesting as follow-up episodes for you to listen to so check them out there on Thursday, of course, there's a Q&A coming out as per usual. And then next Monday, I interview repeat guest Sebastian Weber, who is back and this time to talk about movement quality on the bike. And as part of that broader topic, we will also discuss uh, a device that has become quite quite well known, I would say, in the last couple of years, which is the Leomo Type R, which is a set of motion sensors that can really measure the fine details of your positioning on the bike and the movements that you are making on the bike in in various different ways. So Sebastian goes into detail on how he uses the Leomo in his coaching and and how the information that you can get from from a device like the Leomo uh, can help you improve movement quality and how that translates to to improved bike performance because as we will get into uh, the movement quality there is uh, perhaps a bit of a something that's become forgotten in the age of a lot of indoor cycling and and power focus and of course, if you heard Sebastian's previous interview, uh, episode 169, you know that uh, he is uh, a no-fluff guy, super knowledgeable, incredibly knowledgeable, really. And uh, that episode is uh, no worse than episode 169. It's filled with knowledge and information that you can use and apply. So so really recommend that you check in and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss it, of course. In the meantime, just a reminder, especially for those of you who may be new podcast listeners but are not too familiar with the entire uh, Scientific Triathlon brand, do go to the website scientifictriathlon.com and uh, check out our products and services. Uh, people are really finding great success with uh, things like the uh, the training plans, of course, the coaching uh, and uh, customized training plans, etc. We have something to cater for for many different needs. And... Uh, an email that I just got in that I want to read every now and then take an opportunity to read a testimonial. This one is from Bento Lira in Brazil. He's 63 years old and he writes that uh, I have raced a sprint event today after completing your intermediate sprint 12-week uh, plan and I won my age group. Uh, so thank you very much for your well-thought-out plan. I had a compliance of 96%. 
and felt very, very good throughout the plan and did not get injured or sick. So thank you so much, Bento, for your feedback. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you're looking for a training plan, again, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com. There's uh, a tab called training plans in the menu bar. So you can find all of the different training plans available there. Big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take your free online sweat test and use the promo code show all on word, all caps, to get your first box for free. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving friends.